In this very special season of The Soul of the Nation, the Reverend Jim Wallace is sitting down with 2020 presidential candidates to discuss the role of faith in policy and politics. In today's episode, Jim is speaking with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I've been on this book tour, and we're having, I would say, conversations about Jesus. Hmm in very diverse places, lots of different people. But it's been very interesting to, to go deeper into what Jesus actually said, mm. and did he mean it? <laughs> <laughs> and then what does that mean for right now in this crisis? So um, you have talked more about Jesus than any other candidate, Republican or Democrat. Mm. Why? Because I think it's important. And... Uh, because I fear that uh, there's been an effort to recruit Jesus into one political party, the Republican Party. And, uh, of course, God doesn't belong to a political party in this country. And as Lincoln said, everybody's trying to get God on their side, but you're probably better off trying to uh, make sure you're on God's side. But I think we just need to even out the conversation. And there's an allergy in my party to doing this. And, and, and the allergy comes from a very healthy place, which is that uh, we've seen what happens when people are subjected to other people's interpretation of their own faith. It, it's very important to me, and I think it's very important to the country, that when you're in office or even when you're seeking office, that you're speaking for people of any religion and, and people of no religion equally. But uh, I think that may have prompted us to feel like we can't bring it up at all because there are those with very different views or very different values who have no compunction about bringing it up. Uh, it's it's created the impression that if, if you're guided by faith, you only have one place to go. And my evolution, my political and religious evolution actually, has, has uh, led me to really grow from the awareness that, that, that it doesn't work that way, that, right. that, that, that there's range, there's choice. We believe, we both believe in the separation of church and state, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean the segregation of moral mm -hmm. values from public life. Mm -hmm. So getting over the allergy seems to be important. And what's interesting to me is the Democratic Party core base is African-American women, mm -hmm. the most religious population mm -hmm. in the country. And yet Democrats are reluctant to talk about faith. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in, in exactly that way, but it's true. Uh, you know, something certainly you see in, in my community in South Bend, where about 25% African-American is the role that the church plays in holding so many uh, neighborhoods and, and families together. And I think we, we miss an opportunity if we don't raise these questions, especially now, especially at a moment when uh, even conservative understandings of what faith means in politics have been offended by the current president, let alone progressive ones. And to me, that, that's all the more indication that it's, it's, it's appropriate to talk about these things and, and, and even to litigate them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Look, a, a political contest should never be uh, the same as a theological one, but I do think it's, it's uh, a good moment for us to say, okay, what, what, what does it mean to really be true to these moral traditions and carry them with you into office? So let's, let's litigate that a bit. Um, <laughs> the good news I found in the last 10 days is uh, apparently – mysteriously, maybe miraculously, Jesus has survived all of us Christians. <laughs> and there's real interest among lots of people mm. to look at what he said and what he did. So 
So I've been looking at sort of questions that he asked Mm. or prompted. And some of them go right to the heart of all the issues we're talking about politically. So here's a few of them. The lawyer says to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, love God, love your neighbor. Simple as that. And the lawyer, uh, I think he's a Washington lawyer, actually. (laughs) I know that tone of voice. He says, who is my neighbor? And the Good Samaritan parable follows. So how is that question, who is my neighbor? How does that really underlie all of these issues, so many of them that are going on right now? Well, of course, one of the... uh one of the radical things, one of the scandalous things that Jesus says is that uh, these people that you are led to believe are are uh, unfit to be in contact with you. That's who I have in mind, right? That's your neighbor. Um, that's me, he says in some ways. And we're at a moment where there's such a big question about belonging in this country, what it means to belong, and an effort to tell a lot of people they don't belong perhaps because they're not citizens, or even if they are citizens, that you don't belong because yeah. there's something different about you. And so the, uh, the, the radical message of the gospel includes this idea that, that, uh, that every single person is of equal concern, is, has the divine in them. And I think it mirrors something that's in our civic creed as Americans, that every single person deserves equal concern from the state, from from the government, from our politics, mm-hmm. that we owe the same thing to every single person, yeah. regardless of where they're from or or, or, or ability or any other other questions. Uh, so it, it's a healthy moment, I think, because we're so divided and pitted against each other, to ask what it means to love someone who's different or even. Uh, and that point you just made about the Good Samaritan parable, the Judeans around Jesus didn't think there were any Good Samaritans. They were mixed race; didn't want to be with him. He chooses a Samaritan who's an other. And what he's showing there is your neighbor is the one, especially who's different mm-hmm. than you. And you just alluded to that. That's, and so now we're targeting the very people that Jesus calls our neighbors. And who is my neighbor is pretty central. It is. And, and you know, uh, what a nation can do yeah. at its best is create a sense of belonging that reminds us all that we're neighbors. In other words, there's somebody I might encounter uh, on the street or in, in life who I've got nothing in common with except we're both Americans. And therefore, we have something that, that brings us into one another's concern. That's how I believe if the idea of nations, if the idea of nationality can be morally defended, it's that it can create that spirit. But right now, we have the opposite, right? We have a form of kind of cheap right. nationalism that uses the idea of nationality to tell a lot of people that they aren't your neighbor, even if they literally are your neighbor, to say that we're not, we're not part of the same country or we don't have the same values or we're not in on the same project. Belonging, you mentioned belonging. Mm-hmm. This crisis, political, constitutional, as you know, and are speaking to it. It's also a crisis about whether there will be a we going into an American future, or whether it's always going to be us versus them. Now it's the politics of us versus them. How do we create that we going forward, that sense of, as you put it well, belonging? This is one of the reasons why the, the image I'm always trying to evoke when I'm speaking is of the day after this current presidency ends and, and not just as something to look forward to if we win. That's, that's mm-hmm. a different way. That's a smaller we, the we who's going to win. Uh, I'm talking about the we, the people who, whose lives are going to depend at that moment, which is going to be uh, a tough moment. Uh, we might be relieved that this, this president's chaos is behind us, but I'm talking about a moment when we're going to be very torn up as a country. And it's going to require that the president gather up the pieces 
mm-hmm. and invite everybody to be part of this very, very big we. Mm-hmm. Uh, the we of everybody who is touched by the Constitution, everybody who's here, and motivate us to guide one another in the right mm-hmm. way and, mm-hmm. and, and to support one another. The bigger the we, the stronger the country. But right now, it's uh, this presidency has brought out the worst, certainly in his supporters, but I think sometimes it uh, calls out the worst in those of us who oppose him too, because it tends toward Indeed. this division of the world into good people and bad. Indeed. Lincoln called leaders to bring out the better angels of, of our nature, mm-hmm. but now we have evoking our worst demons. So angels versus demons. It's what the Apostle Paul might call spiritual warfare. Right. It's but that's within us. Politics. And I think that's one thing that, that uh, one religious principle that's very important to me is that, that we're not good people and bad people. We're that's people. Right. We're capable of very good and very bad things. And, and what really matters is what is being called out of us, the, the better or the worse. And it also means, by the way, how you voted doesn't make you a good person or a bad person. I believe there's a lot of moral questions at stake mm-hmm. in, in, in our mm-hmm. voting. But there's some humility uh, in, in terms of uh, assigning some moral status to ourselves because we think we're voting in the right way. Micah, as you know, says, do justice, uh, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Humility is not a trait I find much in politics. No. Well, it, politics is about you, you, you were supposed to promote yourself, right? It's almost literally your job. And when you're not doing that, you're spending a lot of time pointing out the speck in your neighbor's eye because that's that's part of how you explain why you and not somebody else should be in a given seat. And and yet, even in politics, there's got to be some level of humility about what each of us has to offer and and, and the reality that no one alone, uh, contra the, the president's I alone can fix it uh, mantra, nobody alone can do any of this. So how do we change the religious narrative in this uh, 2020 election. You say the Republicans act like they own religion, own God. They often claim that and say that. I was just in Tennessee where people say to a congregation, you can't be a Christian and a Democrat. And so some press have said, well, maybe what what uh, Mayor Pete's doing is creating a religious left. But do we want to create a religious left that mirrors a religious right where ideology and politics wraps around our faith. And now we have a progressive version of this. But do we really want, how can we go deeper than just religious right and left? Yeah, I I wrestle with this. I I do think that if if there is such a thing as a religious right, then there had better be something like a religious left. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although that that doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be a mirror image. I think it means that uh, above all that people of faith know that they do have a choice. that, That if your religious values guide you, Mm-hmm. in what you do in the, the voting booth, then make sure that's all of your religious values, including the ones about protecting the marginalized and being concerned for the poor and uh, respecting the the, uh, uh, the dignity in everybody and, and, and feeding the hungry and identifying with prisoners and welcoming strangers, and all of the things that are in there. But it does, of course, diminish religion to reduce it to a political value system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's great peril, even as I often recruit uh, religious arguments to, to try to explain what I think is morally at stake and what I have to offer. Mm-hmm. We've got to be careful that we're not trying to, to wrestle God down into where he'll fit in a, in a political party. So when you talk about Jesus, you always bring up what you just did. What's the relation to marginalized people? And you got into my conversion text, Matthew 25, you know, the it was me text, I was hungry. Mm-hmm. 
I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was in stranger means immigrant, of course, mm-hmm. refugee. Right. I was sick. I was in prison. And uh, so he says, geez, the least of these are the most important mm-hmm. to him. Uh, and in Washington, where we are now, the least of these are the least important all the time. Right. Really both parties, yeah. least important. So how do we, how does politics, how do we talk about the ones that Jesus calls the least of these being so important, really as a test, as a test of the health, yeah. the moral health of any society? First of all, we have to say so. You know, one bit of advice you get in politics, at least as a Democrat, is take care not to talk too much about the poor. Just talk about the middle class, because everybody wants to be in the middle class, even if they're poor. And yet, right now, one of the things we've got to talk about is poverty. We've got to talk about the poor, which is uh, more and more of us, especially if we're honest about it. If poverty means being unsure how you're going to get through the next month, if something comes your way, we're talking about a group of people that's approaching half the country, uh, in addition to those living in extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. You have to say so. Uh, and this is also a question of power. Who is empowered by our political system? I would like to believe that one of the virtues of uh, the democratic system is that Mm -hmm. it's more likely to enable those who have been marginalized to to acquire power and and, and, uh, to be made better off. But uh, needless to say that some of the uh, twisting of our democracy that's happened uh, as a consequence of many things, some of which can be reversed by good policies like the role Mm -hmm. of money in politics, um, that has made for a government, even in this supposedly democratic nation whose very structure it tends to to comfort the comfortable and afflict the afflicted sometimes when i talk to my democratic friends i say jesus didn't say as you've done to the middle class you've done to me (laughs) very good as you've done to the least of these you've done (laughs) to me and that's something that both parties you're exactly right they don't want to talk about poverty uh another of the questions i'm looking at is uh Pilate and jesus having a debate about the truth and Pilate's losing the, the debate. So he says, oh, what is truth? Washes his hands, crucifies Jesus. The number of times the present lies is important to talk about, but it's an underneath thing about undermining the very idea of the truth. What is truth? Autocrats, strongmen like say, there is no truth, so listen to me. So that question, Jesus says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So truth and freedom are deeply connected here. So when we lose the idea of even the truth itself, we're in danger of losing our freedom. Very much so. And, uh, you know, this is the hazard of uh, alternative facts. There's, uh, I think, a general acceptance on all sides of the aisle that this president's loose with the truth. The Mm -hmm. the debate is over whether it matters. Whether Um, it matters is exactly the issue. And it matters. It certainly matters to, to uh, uh, Kurdish civilians right now who are mm-hmm. suffering because it turns out that the word of the United States wasn't going to be kept under this president. Uh, it matters to those of us who, who uh, believe or, or see that the only way we can build any kind of consensus is to honestly negotiate around our differences, uh, which is, I think, how good politics were. I, look, I come out of a very uh, on-the-ground understanding of politics because I'm a ama- there's no alternative facts around if there's a if the sewer is busted or the road hasn't been plowed that you can't yeah. just declare that it's fine and and create your own truth because everybody can tell they refute it by yeah. <laughs> by pointing to it and so I think uh, we, we need to import a little more of that reality based mm-hmm. uh, approach to to Washington before it's too late 
because if people get to make their own truth, it, it becomes incredibly dangerous. Reclaiming Jesus Now with Jim Wallace is a 10-episode podcast series on the themes of Jim Wallace's new book, Christ in Crisis, Why We Need to Reclaim Jesus. Wallace is joined by two voices from a rising generation of activists, William Matthews and Allison Trowbridge, who seek to reconcile their own spiritual journeys with the spiritual and political crises we face today. Jim Wallace's new book and the conversations in this podcast are organized around eight urgent and provocative questions Jesus Christ asked or provoked while pursuing his call. These questions confront all of us with an invitation and a choice. How will you respond? Listen to Reclaiming Jesus Now with Jim Wallace on your favorite podcast app. There's a leadership issue here, too. At his Last Supper, he's having a meal with his disciples. They all want to sit next to him, hmm. and their parents are getting involved. As a former Little League coach, I know how that happens. you know. Uh, and then he says, the Gentiles lorded over the people, wealth, power, winning and losing. But I want you to be servants. I want you to be the one who serves the others. Let me share what I mean and washes their feet. Yeah. So foot washing becomes Jesus' sort of style of leadership. And we're so far away from even public service is now undermined. So how do we, that's pretty core, what it means to lead and, and be a servant. That we've, that's, that's a big loss here. Yeah, and, and there's a tradition of this. So one of the, it, it's maybe small in the grand scheme of things, but one of the, the military traditions I appreciate the most is that when uh, it's chow time, the custom is that the officers eat last mm. uh, because being in a position of trust and leadership means, among other things, you're responsible for making sure the people who are beneath you in the pecking order are fed, and, and then it's your turn. Uh, and so I think service in the sense of, in our side, kind of civic sense, we're talking about military or public right. service, mm-hmm. is not unrelated to that ethic, that, right. that, uh, that, that Christian ethic around uh, the idea of service. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I believe national service is an idea whose time has come. I would have it be voluntary, but I'd have it be paid and, and become a norm so that everybody, uh, if we create a million paid service opportunities a year, then uh, whether you're going to college or whether you're going right into the working world, the first thing you do as you kind of emerge into adulthood is have a year of serving. Mm-hmm. And partly because it's a way to, to create that sensibility among people, and partly because of the chance to see humanity and others very different from you that you're serving alongside, which mm-hmm. I think is another virtue of military service. Um, but I think... At a deep level, it can't be separated from, especially when we think about exalted roles in service, like the presidency. To think about that image of foot washing, I think about it a lot because here you have, you have divinity on earth. And I'm sure, especially in you know, that period of, of yeah. human civilization, yeah. feet are pretty gross. Yeah. And, and the idea of, the, the, of God himself taking a knee uh, and, and demonstrating what it is uh, to serve in that way. It's very powerful. So serving, you're the mayor piece of the servant leader takes the crisis, the, disa- the disaster, and finds what's the way out of this. And then you're saying is, is last in line. Uh, yeah, and there are all kinds of metaphors. You, know, you talk about a captain who goes down to the ship if, it's not, if, if everybody else hasn't uh, gotten off. Or you talk about uh, what it is when there's a success and, and to try to lift up everybody who's had a hand in it. Sometimes I think the most important part of the presidency is the part that's not written down anywhere. Uh, and I, I learned this about 
the office of mayor that, uh, of course, a lot of it has to do with setting policy. And a lot of it has to do with running an organization, running a government. But the moments I felt I most earned my paycheck as mayor were moments where I was able to invoke the symbolism of the city or the fact that I'm a walking symbol of, of whatever the city might have in common and use that to draw people together or call them to their higher values. And if that's true for a mayor, it's much that much more true for a president. And yeah. I think when we miss that, it's, it's perhaps the costliest thing of all about where we are today. If you become president, how would your faith determine your priorities? And then how would it affect your interaction with other people? Well, first of all, one, one principle that I draw from faith is that everybody is created in the image of God and that everybody has equal dignity. And so when dealing, whether it's dealing with other politicians who you really want to let them have it and <laughs> to conclude that they're just despicable people and, and need to cool it a little bit, um, or when you're interacting with someone who doesn't have much of a claim on, on power, but uh, you know ha- ought to have as much of a claim on well-being as anybody among mm-hmm. us. Uh, I think carrying that principle helps you restrain yourself in some situations and extend yourself in others and, and reach out to people and, and, and really embrace that sense of humility and how mm-hmm. we're supposed to interact with others. It's... Uh, it's not good for your humility to be in high office. Sometimes it is when, 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 when you're a punching bag, but more often it's not because uh, of the way you're treated, and people attending to you, and all, all of the kind of, uh, even, even in our messy democratic system, all of the uh, accoutrements that go with being in office. It's not good. I mean, it's good for your ego, and it's not good for your humility. And so I think faith is a good way to hold that in check. But Obama used to actually tell me how the, this office brought him really did bring him to his knees Mm. time and time again because he just didn't know what to do or how to do it. Mm. And so there was a humility that came Mm. in not acting like or knowing that you always know what to do. And I think in his case, it really did bring him to prayer Mm. uh, more than before. Well, it makes sense. I mean, prayer is the the act of engaging with what's what's greater and more powerful than you are uh, when you're trying to get somewhere. You once said that liturgical prayer organized liturgical prayer, uh, it, it tunes my heart to the right. Yeah, something about the, the, the rhythm and, and the, um, the fact that it's collective or often collective uh, when we pray, certainly in the Episcopal uh, tradition, um, helps me get around the philosophical problem that I have with prayer, which is the idea of telling God what to do, which I always thought was strange. The fact that uh, it's always in the imperative mood, grammatically, right? right. As, as though we're we're offering. And God didn't know Aunt Susie was sick. Uh, was <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think that's a challenge in order to bring your whole heart to to prayer. If you're wondering what's up with that, but then the extent to which doing it with your whole heart has an effect on you mm-hmm. is is very important. And for whatever reason, and this may not be a profound theological uh, position, it may be as simple as a matter of something you might almost describe as taste or habit. But for whatever reason, for me, uh, I find that that, that that experience of finding my heart tuned in the right way happens most when I'm in a, a fairly liturgically conservative environment where I'm with people who are different from me or gathered for the purpose of uttering these prayers. Uh, but people have very strong views. So often the tag for you is the first gay married man running for president of the United States. And yet you have talked about you used a word I really am drawn to. You want to beckon people 
mm-hmm. beckon people who aren't who aren't there yet on same-sex marriage from from their religious traditions. So much of someone's ability to open their mind to something new or different depends on how uh, they feel about themselves. And so, if somebody is, uh, if I'm trying to move somebody, and the first thing I say is that they're wrong and backwards and hateful, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't think of themselves as wrong or backwards or certainly hateful, unlikely that I'm going to put them in a place where they're even capable of seeing their way to where I'm coming from. And so. We've got to remember that seeing the humanity in everybody means everybody, especially the people you're having a problem with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, love your friend and hate your enemy. That's that's easy enough. <laughs> and on an issue like LGBTQ equality, I really believe this is also a battle within people. I think it, it is sometimes a battle between what they have been told and how they have been brought up and something very good inside them, which is compassion. Most of the experiences that I hear about of people coming to, especially when it comes to coming to accept someone they love who turns out to be gay or turns out to be different, is that it's, it's love that's winning. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do your part to create the conditions that allow love to win. And that means that if we want somebody to move, it's better to, uh, to call them over to where you're trying to get them to go than to try to drag them there. I was reading where you were saying that why is it same-sex marriage marriage is about is about love right mm-hmm. and you went on and talked about uh, sex should be about love too and why is this the area where people are going after when in fact as you just said this is where we are learning you you said your marriage has made you a better person mm-hmm. and brought you closer to god right so in this whole area of love and and you, you said well i think marriage or sex ought to be about love right yeah. well these are very conservative things you're saying I suppose so, and I yeah. should say this is a this is a personal understanding, and not yeah. one I'm out to impose on anybody else. Right. But it, it's an understanding that's rooted in my beliefs, and I, I suppose also just rooted in my experience. Uh, again, I don't want to insist that everybody else maybe see it that way, but in that particular sense, I suppose I suppose it is a conservative view. And does faith open us up to if you don't go left, don't go right, go deeper? Does it open us up to kind of new ways forward on some things like like how do we get past this sort of politicizing of same-sex marriage or abortion mm. when you've got women who are who are often low-income and alone getting abortions meaning they're vulnerable yeah. and then the life that's growing be becoming is vulnerable two vulnerable populations so why are we pro-life pro-choice how do we deal with two vulnerable populations here in a different way than just politicizing this personal thing well the, the way i come at it is is that precisely because we're dealing with a question that, that in some way is unknowable, at least right. in the ways that, that certain things are knowable. We'll do better trying to come to an agreement about who gets to make these decisions mm-hmm. than what the decision ought to be. And, and I think more broadly, when I think about faith, when I think about how I came to faith, it's much less about what I'm certain that I believe than what I've come to realize I can't know. Right. It was really as a graduate student realizing the limits of my own reason. Um, and, and that's really what led me to the church. And you might say I came to the church before I came to the faith. But so much of it is about realizing what you don't understand, uh, what you can't understand. And it's the throwing of yourself mm-hmm. uh, onto something bigger that I think could filter into a lot of our most hostile and divisive questions in politics today. And you surprise people sometimes by doing that. So one of your fellow candidates came out with a taxing churches, 
hmm. or taking their tax exemptions away if they don't accept same-sex marriage. And you said to Beto, I don't think that's the way to approach this. Right. And look, nobody's more in favor of same-sex sure. marriage than me. I'm, I'm in one, and it's the most important <laughs> thing in my life. But uh, to me, that, that doesn't mean that uh, we get to use the, the mechanisms of the state in that particular way. Because when you're going after tax exemption of a church, what you're really saying is that this church isn't a church. We've decided it's not. Uh, it's one thing to enforce anti-discrimination law yeah, organizations, sure. even religious ones in many cases, mm-hmm. we ought to do. Yeah. Um, it's another to say that you don't get to be in whatever protections we've created for religion as a whole uh, because you have a, a position that, uh, certainly a position obviously that I very much don't like. I often notice you're good in what they call lightning rounds. You know, People want to ask you questions. And when, the, when debates happen, They'll raise an issue, and the issue isn't faith. What do you think about your faith? Mm-hmm. It's about an issue, uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. And you'll talk about God and stewardship. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the lightning round, it evokes faith when the question wasn't about faith. Mm-hmm. You're applying faith. Well, isn't every question about faith in some way? That's exactly, I think it is. Yeah. But you apply it when it isn't the topic. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, faith can be very divisive, obviously. Yeah. For as long as there have been religions, people have been fighting over them. But... Imagine if we, we who are involved in politics, look every time, every chance we can to faith as a source of unity. Mm-hmm. And here you have climate. It's an issue that, in my view, the, the urgency of dealing with climate change is just manifestly beyond anything we can allow to remain a partisan issue. It's just too, mm-hmm. uh, it's too, it'd be as if cancer were a partisan issue and, and, and some people said it wasn't real. We've got to move beyond that. And so I'm looking for ways to reach people where they are. Mm-hmm. And faith is one of them. Uh, especially if you believe that we are entrusted with um, power over something that we certainly didn't create and had better treat it well. And I think that's a big part of what's at stake in the question of ensuring that we do right by creation. Last thing I'll say is I just, uh, when people ask me, why do you think uh, this candidate is talking about faith so much, just brings it up, um, having taught faith and politics a lot at Harvard and Georgetown, where you've been. I don't think it's from polling that this might work. This might be effective. This might bring Dems back to some people. It has to come from inside of you if you just bring it up when you're on the debate stage that you have. So somehow what's inside of you is changing your perspective on what are called political issues because it becomes a faith issue too. It's not the sort of thing anybody can tell you. Right. It's a chance to explain who you are. Uh, I've heard uh, campaigns described as an MRI of the soul. And if the <laughs> the intensity of politics is such that it does on some level give everybody x-ray vision into who you are, uh, you might as well do everything you can to uh, bring it out sooner rather than later. So how does Faith Holds Accountable? How does it open up new possibilities for bringing people together, and not just dividing us? Thanks for helping us do that. We'll do our best. All right. Thank Thank you. you.